You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Captivate and on Patreon. You can get bonus content of our show on either of those platforms or on Apple Podcasts with a private subscription to the Amazal Ministries Podcast Network. Exodus 35, 10-19 in the Christian Standard Bible read, Let all the skilled artisans among you come and make everything that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and covering, its clasps and supports, its crossbars, its pillars and bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the curtain for the screen, the tables with its poles, all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand for light with its utensils and lamps, as well as the oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the entryway screen for the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grate, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the hangings of the courtyard, its posts and bases, and the screen for the gate of the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and the tent pegs for the courtyard, along with their robes, and the specially woven garments for ministering in the sanctuary, the holy garments for the priest Aaron, and the garments for his sons to serve as priests. Here, Moses is having the children of Israel prepare the tabernacle in the way God commanded. We see everyone working together for crafts, tailoring robes, and decorating the worship area. Even though we are no longer under the law of Moses as Christians, we believe aesthetics can play an important part of worship. Uh, Professor Chris Moreland, why do you believe God had the people of Israel put so much into the decor of their worship area, and what can today's church learn from that? So... Aesthetics bring people closer to the presence of the divine. Uh, God created the universe, God created this world, and part of the world is the five senses. And so this is why you get the focus on, you know, textiles, the focus on incense, the focus on um, all on the visual elements. So these things are to lift people out of the temporal world, out of the muck and mire, and to help them think about more noetic things, to bring them to contemplate and to reflect on their eternal destiny rather than being completely brought down by, you know, quotidian life. Hmm. Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast, probably your favorite Church Unity Podcast, although it's possible you have others. However, what's not possible, it's not possible you have any other favorite co-host than the one that had descended down from the heavens himself. Um, when when I was praying about doing this podcast, God said, let me let me send you somebody. He'll do it much better. And he sent the one and only TJ Tiberius one Blackwell. TJ, how's it going? It's going. Yeah, he's ready for this season one to end so we can go back uh, back upstairs. Francis Chan, we're looking at you. <laughs> oh, man. So we're also joined by uh, one of your favorite return guests. Um, great guy, a professor at uh, my, what I still consider my college, even though I didn't graduate from there. Um, UNCW, world religion professor, as well as a uh, devout Catholic believer, the one and only Professor Chris Moreland. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. Yeah, yeah. And uh, if, I, if I'm thinking right, it's world religion and then like specifically female in religion. So it's like a... So I'm still teaching. 
Yeah, I'm still teaching uh, Par 103, Intro to World Religion, and I'm teaching Par 225, formerly called Women in Religion, uh, now called Women, now called Gender and Religion, but I still hmm. spend about 90% of the time talking about women. So, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. And today, uh, this is the end of our ecumenical aesthetic series. This is it, guys. And uh, we're going to talk to apparently what seems like the only church that has statues. <laughs> from all the other people we talked to, to um a church that might be uses the arts more than any other the the catholic tradition and while they're here uh we're also going to talk some about how women are involved or portrayed in religious art so excited yeah. to touch on these subjects yeah uh, be a good time oh uh, yeah i call that my almost modern josh if you want to start calling you into almost modern i like that yeah that's what you call ngu yeah i like it yeah. <laughs> my almost modern yeah yeah, my almost modern. Uh, so check out the <laughs> other Honest Ministries podcasts. Uh, you know, we have the AMP network. The link is below for shows sort of like ours. And uh, hang out with us on our Discord server. It's in the notes. Ask us questions. We'll respond in a timely manner, maybe. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So Yeah. So with that, um, it's time for, for one of my favorite spiritual practices, um, something that's guaranteed to bring unity without fail, of course, I'm talking about silliness. And we start each show with a silly question. And um, I always forget what they are. I type them out and then never think about them again until we record. And then I laugh when I read my own writing. <laughs> Today, the question for the finale, which hymn do you think would sound best when played on the xylophone? Um, TJ, please answer this first. Um, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Does that count? No. No? It has to be a regular hymn? Yeah, like a, like a church hymn. All yeah. the hymn? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I thought of an answer, by the way. <laughs> Abide With Me, maybe? I think that would sound nice. That's a good one. Yeah. I'm thinking Rock of Ages. That's a good one. I think that'd be good. You might have yeah. to add a drum, but I think it'd be good. All right. Professor Moylan. Come what thou font of every blessing. Ooh. Oh, that's good. Yeah, and if uh, any of our listeners has a xylophone... Um, please send us samples so we can compare. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please join the Discord oh, drop man. that in there. Uh, so one of the main <laughs> reasons we're doing this series is because of our belief that beauty can bring people closer to God and to one another. So we have a few questions we're asking everyone in the series to go along with that belief. So could you tell us of a time where you've seen God in the beauty of creation? Outside specifically. But if there's not one, then, you know, it's up to you. What immediately comes to mind is um, we had this incredibly rainy winter in California, and the rains will do great things to the environment. Uh, it'll completely change the way a part of California looks. And because of how rainy it was, uh, the wine country, which usually looks a lot more like southern France or northern Italy, uh, sort of drier, um, looked way more like Scotland and way more like Ireland. And there was lots of fog and there was lots of mist and it was beautiful and it was just very surreal and very transcendent. And that's awesome. so nice. Yeah, that sounds you know, great. Actually, I do really like a good morning fog. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not caused by like pollution. It's it's great. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. The, you what don't about like you, LA? The fog? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So would you share a moment with us if you have one uh, when you felt a special connection to a painting, sculpture, or 
you know, some other art installation. Mm. It doesn't have to be religious. It can be. Yes. So um, I remember being at the Basilica of Santa Maria in Trastevere in Rome. It is um, an ancient Roman basilica. And it, it was when I walked into it, what just astounded me was that there I was in this church that I had seen time and time and time again in my history books. And I'd always seen it, you know, from this like third party perspective, reading it in a textbook, seeing it in, you know, a book of art, and then actually seeing it there in reality was something very different. And then when you saw it, the when you saw the mosaic in the background, and you saw it in context, and you saw that it wasn't in isolation, but that this piece of artwork was part of an entire like collection of art, an entire aesthetic. It magnified the impact. It magnified the impact of it. Right. Um, I also really like the fact that the uh, the aesthetics of that basilica uh, is very what they call old Roman. So it harkens back to a time where the delineation between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity was very, very thin, where you have an almost universal Christian aesthetic that is, you can see it, you can see the elements of the Western, Western aesthetic tradition there. You can also see the elements of the Eastern, but they haven't quite diverged yet. So hmm. that's, that does sound beautiful. Um, so another question we're asking everybody, um, that, you know, there's a lot of studies, scientific medical studies that have been done that kind of show when someone perceives beauty, either by sight or sound or whatever, just perceiving beauty itself has a healing effect on the human body. Um, we're just kind of wondering if you had any ideas why you thought God would wire humans to have that. Well, I know that um, many aspects of God, they say, are, you know, it's the beautiful the, it's the beautiful, the pure, the true. Um, and I think that I think that God wired us this way because we are designed to desire the good. We're designed for not this world. We are designed for the afterlife. We're designed for the things of heaven. And uh, we're, des- you know, that is where our home is. That is where our home is. And I think that when we see beauty, I think we're recognizing, we're getting a foretaste of our eternal destiny. Um, and I think that that is why it fills us with joy and it fills us with peace. Because if we're, we're only getting fragments and mere shadows of that here on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost like um, beauty is like a, uh, the light shining through from the heavens. Yes, that, exactly. Yeah, I like that. It's a great answer. So before we get into the more unique aspects of the episode, uh, there is one segment we're doing in every ecumenical aesthetics episode and it's called the artist corner i have a mm-hmm. bunch of questions to read we have seven minutes to do them so if we only answer one and you just want to talk about it for seven minutes that's fine okay all right so uh do you prefer hymns or modern worship music hymns mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh if your favorite bible passage were a painting what would it look like already exists it's the annunciation nice mm. and that's cheating uh, so yeah. <laughs> what is the most unique piece of art that you've ever seen or heard? Uh, Palestrina's Credo, Misa Pape Marcelli. Mm, that's gorgeous. Uh, so how do you use music or other art in your worship time? Um, it's completely all-encompassing. 
it is one of those things where it all has to go together. You cannot have the music, the aesthetics, the vestments, and the architecture in opposition. There needs to be a there needs to be a complementary design language to create a more intangible feeling in worship. Does your church have a flag? And if so, what do you know about it? The Catholic Church has the flag of the Vatican City State. It is, um, hmm. yeah, it is uh, silver on one side, gold on the other. It has the papal coat of arms. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, and it has existed since roughly about 1870. There was a earlier version of that that was more like red and gold, um, but the, but you know, the papacy is you know also a state. So some Catholic churches have it up on the altar; others don't. It's not mandatory. It's not mandatory. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a unique church to ask that question to, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most churches don't yeah. have a country. Also, very, also, various orders in the Catholic Church may have their own flag. For example, the Knights of Malta, the Equestrian Order of the Holy mm. Sepulchre, they have their own flags. Um it's plausible. I don't know off the top of my head if the various monastic orders have flags. If they do, they aren't used very much. They aren't used very much. No, no that's kind of, we found that to be pretty common. Mm-hmm. So at, at yeah. some point, most organizations are like, we need a flag, and then they stop using it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Flags so, were so yesterday. Flags were so last century. So <laughs> does your church have stained glass? And if so, what is on it? At uh, the Newman Center at UNCW, Sister Rose helped design it, and it is beautiful. It's magnificent, Uh, and it actually has um, seagrass in it and uh, starfishes and other sand dollars and other things that both have spiritual significance, particularly the sand dollar uh, and the starfish. Uh, Not so much the seagrass to my knowledge uh, as beautiful as it is Um, but it represents both spiritual um, both both spiritual significance but also the unique aesthetics of the Wilmington area and its coastal environment yeah Yeah, Wilmington's beautiful awesome area Um, also if anyone's wondering uh, there isn't a very official way to sign up to be a guest on our show it's a whole website we're very official about it um, and you are required to join the Sister Rose fan club yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's the best. We miss yeah. her so much. <laughs> Where we recruit from. Yeah. Uh, so, do, what kind of wall decor is around your church, and what is its significance? Ah, uh, so at uh, the Newman Center, it's a little simpler than most Catholic churches because it's also you have to use the worship space sort of for multi-purpose. Mm-hmm. So um, we do have an image of uh, the Divine Mercy. Uh, so Christ is divine mercy. Uh, we have crucifixes, but it's actually far more simple than most churches because of because we also use that for our social space as well. The chapel we have is far more ornate, and there is um, there is religious artwork in there. More typical stuff. We have a statue of Saint Joseph. Uh, we have an image of the Blessed Virgin. Uh, we have crucifixes, and we have a. Um, we have an image depicting Jesus's baptism in the River Jordan. Mm. All right. Yeah, I, uh, I've actually spent a good bit of time in the Newman Center, so mm-hmm. I just got to bring up a uh, part of the wall decor is a TV that I've watched yes. at least twenty hours of film with a film major that had to do homework. Yeah, it was a good time. Yeah. Though. yeah. No. So, 
Does your church have any statues that you could discuss? Yes, we have a statue of St. Joseph. So St. Joseph, um, the worker, foster father of Jesus, uh, he is considered next to the Blessed Virgin, one of the most important saints. He's actually mentioned in the canon of the Mass, um, and he is very beloved. He is the patron saint of workers, of carpenters. Um, he is whom you pray to to sell your house. He is also the patron saint of anti-communism. Awesome, I think. Huh. How does hmm? How does that happen? Because he, as a worker, shows how Catholics and Christians are supposed to behave as workers, as opposed to uh, Marxist revolutionaries. So he, huh. it ties in a lot with Catholic social justice theories about um, the dignity and value of work and how um, work, work, neither workers nor employers should be exploited, but instead of being in conflict, they should work together for the common good. All right. Well, that is all the questions. So, okay. so now I can do my follow-up. Sure. Um, just just for clarity's sake and, you know, I, my, uh, clarity and clarity's sake. Um, mm -hmm. Clarity for everyone. So you mentioned patron saint of something or praying mm -hmm. to somebody. Um, I know we've had this conversation of the saints aren't other gods. Um, no. Could you just clarify for those who haven't heard us talk about that on the show before, what, what you talk about when you say patron saint of something or praying to Joseph? Yes. So we ask the saints to intercede for us before the throne of God, uh, just in the same way that sometimes we need people here on earth to speak on our behalf. Um, you know, we even see this in family systems dynamics where we might have to talk to our mom to get our dad to agree to something. <laughs> you know, eventually we will have that conversation with that. Uh, but sometimes we need we need a little bit of extra support. We need advocates. We need friends. We need someone to say things in a slightly different way. So, yeah. Uh, but the patron saints, um, sometimes they become patron saints of things officially. Sometimes they, it, it's very bottom up. It's sometimes it's like, you know, the average person is just like, this seems to go together. And from time immemorial, they've always been associated with it. Sometimes the way they're going to show how God can, has a good sense of humor and can make uh, light out of darkness. Often the horrible ways in which they were killed become what they're the patron saints of. So right. if they were, you know, baked alive, they become the patron saint of bakers. You know, St. Bartholomew was skinned alive, and so he's now the patron saint of leather workers. Fascinating. Class yeah. Yes. I um. So just, just thinking, especially when we're talking about the art conversation, you said you have a statue of St. Joseph up. Um, so, so, so is the idea that you would go to the statue and talk to the statue, and then Joseph up in, uh, maybe not in heaven, depending on your theology maybe like abram's bosom i don't know up wherever he is abram or sorry saint joseph is in so god here's the deal chris is really concerned america's going to become communist and joseph just has <laughs> the on communism so god's like you know okay yeah i hear you yeah yeah, yeah it, it's a, it's pretty much exactly as you said yeah but you don't you also do pray directly to god you don't think you have to have an intercessor uh no no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's sort of the can. way that – but you can. And it's often the way you feel moved. 
Um, and sometimes having a statue or an icon is a very powerful way to focus your prayers in a very powerful way to not get distracted. So when you're sort of looking at an icon or you're looking at a statue or a piece of stained glass or artwork, it does prevent your mind from wandering. And, you know, it's also helpful, I think, to understand that, you know, the saints, we're all called to be saints. And even with their flaws, they pleased God. And even with our flaws, we can do the same if we follow their example. Yeah. Now, just as a like a more practical, curious thing, because, you know, a lot of times how we think things work or how we say things work and like what it looks like in practice is slightly different mm-hmm. or varied in some way. Do you ever like find yourself like talking to Joseph? God, I really don't want America to become communist. I know, this is <laughs> just my silly example. But I love it though. I then find yourself talking to God. Like you start off talking to Joseph and then sometimes you're like, God, no, seriously, I don't like this. And then sometimes like you're switched back to Joseph. Is that ever like a thing? Yeah, actually it is. It yeah, is. Okay. Like when yeah, you I, I could just see talk. myself doing that. Where like it, when you're in prayer, it's almost like mm-hmm. th- there's something otherworldly about it. So you're not mm-hmm. always like you are in control, but you're not always in control. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you know, following your mom when she goes to tell your dad about the thing you want her to say. Yeah. 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 Walk right behind her, and you're like, please. Or sitting around. <laughs> well, or sitting around. <laughs> yeah. Or sitting around a dinner table. Yeah. You know. So. <laughs> Sorry, I got I got uh, I got a little head of the horse on this one, um, but uh, Professor Chris, mm-hmm. a lot of our listeners are more evangelical Protestant kind of uh, backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, we we still have a lot of people, you know, Catholic Orthodox listen as well. But for those outside of the Catholic tradition, um, they kind of get a little eerie about how art is used, statues, icons, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of confusion around that. Is why they're so I don't I don't want to say scared, but non-generous towards mm-hmm, mm-hmm. towards it. yeah i think that's a good word um could you kind of help how, how how would you speak to that situation for those who are feeling some kind of way that are you know negatively towards those who use art or statues or are concerned that it's really idol worship but called you know like we're just mm-hmm. trying to trying to justify idol worship basically is how some people i think are coming at this Well, we're not, you know, obviously we are not worshiping the actual stone or the actual, you know, wood or the actual material. That would be blasphemous. Um, The other thing is that if you go back to the earlier history of Protestantism, not all of the early Protestant denominations were um, iconoclastic. Um, Luther uh, in particular uh, was not about tearing around, tearing down stained glass. We know that in England, there were incredible disputes between the reformers about the use of statuary, the use of stained glass, the use of crosses, and there was no unified Protestant opinion on that. Um, yeah. So if you look at Henry VIII, pretty much Catholic without a Pope, but he also had phases where he leaned a little more Lutheran. His son was very iconoclastic. Edward was very Calvinistic, very much against icons and images. That's when most of the damage happens. Elizabeth, in some ways, she was very iconoclastic. She did not like the elevation of the host. 
But she was criticized by the Puritans for having a cross, a gold cross in her chapel and candles. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. So why extremes you, and, yeah. Yeah. So why do you think so few other traditions use statues like the Catholic Church? Is it lack of artistry or it's a lack of artistry. I just think also that, you know, whenever something new comes about, you're always trying to find a way to differentiate yourself. And um, it's, you know, a way of trying to show visually we are something different. So, uh, you know, visual, visual language is a form of communication. Art is a form of communication. And so if you're trying to send the message, we are something different. We are not like them. That is a very strong way to do that in the same way that Islam shows, even though perhaps on the exterior, a lot of their buildings actually might look slightly orthodox, slightly Eastern, go on to the inside and it's a world of difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So speaking of like icons and statues, what are some mm -hmm. of your favorites from your own tradition? Do you have like a favorite icon or anything? Um. I love the, I love the image of Christ Pantocrator, you know, Christ, the, you know, divine heavenly ruler. Um, I'm very fond of the image of Jesus's divine mercy. That's a fairly new image, came out in the 1930s. Um, and I'm very, very fond, of course, of Our Lady of Guadalupe for many, many reasons. Um, it's, I think it's a perfect example of true Christian enculturation. It's the type of enculturation that is organic and comes from the bottom up rather than being created by a committee around a board table. I think we've seen some pretty cringe examples of enculturation in the past 50 years. Could you unpack some of like what that is and uh, what you mean by the enculturation or lack of it? Yes. So Christianity, the idea is that when Christianity encounters any culture, it doesn't destroy it, but transforms it and sort of magnifies it to a higher level. So, you know, Christianity didn't come in, even though it had been persecuted by the Roman Empire. It doesn't go in and say, all your architecture, all your artwork is just nonsense. We will no longer have the ark and, and the column and the basilica. No. In the same way, when Christianity has encountered uh, new cultures, new traditions, anything that is good, beautiful, and true is brought into it. So many of the, you know, when it encounters the Aztec tradition, the image for Leo Guadalupe and the way she is dressed and the, sim the symbols that are involved in that with her standing on the sun and the moon, the way that she's got the belt on to signify that she's a virgin, the way that her, even the way that her hair is combed. These are all native Aztec symbols. And the church adopts those things and uses them to get to higher truths. But it's not going to adopt pyramids of skulls, you know. No, no you yeah. can't win everything. So unfortunately. Uh, yeah. I mean, there is – there is, and, you know, to be eminently fair about that, um, there is a chapel made of bones and skulls in uh, oh. the Czech Republic, the Sedlik, yeah. Sedlik no. ossuary. But, you know. It's cool. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean – Within context, I mean, if you don't look at it the right way, it could be a little macabre, but uh, oh, yeah. it makes sense. It makes sense where it is. It's very Czech. Yeah, it is very Czech. It's very Central European. Yeah. So 
outside of the Catholic tradition, is there any other like religious art or anything that like specially means something to you or that you just enjoy? Well, I mean, it's difficult to really say where Catholic art and Orthodox art ends and yeah. begins. Because again, we are, we are one church for so long. We have 23, we have 23 individual churches within the wider Catholic church that are Eastern. Um, where you can get things a little mixed up is if you have a saint that's a saint in Orthodoxy, but not a saint in Catholicism or vice versa. And then the question is, well, what if you have like an icon of a very, very Western saint, like uh, Ignatius of Loyola, who really doesn't come from that Eastern tradition. But, you know, there are Catholic artists who have done that. Um, I would also say that, you know, outside of Christianity, there, I, I can still find the aesthetics from many other religions to be very moving and very beautiful. There's definitely something in the simplicity and elegance of Shintoism uh, that, is, that is very moving. Um, there is, you know, Islamic calligraphy is very beautiful. Islamic tile work is very beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, I think that these types of, this type of beauty can permeate even out, can permeate outside of Christianity. And I think the reason we find it beautiful is because we find it familiar because we find parallels to our own faith. Mm -hmm. So and I am. Um just speaking of art from other religion, I talk about this a lot and I try to look up the name of it. And it appears that the name is literally just the vinegar tasters. Mm. But uh, just speaking of art from other religions, um, oh, yeah. really speaks to me is, is this painting of Lao Tzu, Buddha, and um, Confucius sitting around all tasting a pot of vinegar. And you can see the Buddha making the, um, the the bitterness face. Mm. And you see um, Confucius kind of making like a, squinting kind of face and mm -hmm. then Lao Tzu just smiling because mm -hmm. this tastes like vinegar and yeah. that's what it's supposed to taste like you know and um it's always kind of to me even though the painting is supposed to be that they're all right in some way for mm -hmm. me I always just connect with Lao Tzu and I'm like yeah I want to have that mindset of I'm glad this is what it is supposed to be mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah which I got to remember when I have to taste the mild salsa at Chipotle I don't like tomatoes <laughs> yeah. yeah it's very tomatoey yeah because uh, it is just tomatoes pretty much uh so you do <laughs> teach world religion and mm -hmm. and you, it, you know it kind of gives you a more unique perspective on certain things than other people who have been catholic their entire life and uh, so how do you think the way most christian traditions use art compares to how other world religions use art in their worship specifically I think there's actually a lot of similarities between the way that art is used in Hinduism, which is a very visually rich culture, uh, Buddhism, Confucianism. Um, with Islam, it becomes a little more challenging because Islam is so uh, iconoclastic. However, there are some aspects of Islam that use art that is a little more personal uh, for example, we think of the uh, Sufi miniatures, uh, the Persian artwork that actually will even de depict um, depict the prophet, although he will be veiled or have like a sunburst um, to obscure him. Um, so there are and, you know, there are even images of angels and images of paradise in some of the Persian Islamic artwork. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just 
curious, just kind of, I guess, get a little bit in the weeds here, but mm-hmm. is that iconoclastic mindset of a lot of Islamic traditions similar to the iconoclasm mindset of a lot of Protestant traditions? That connection has been drawn several times before. Uh, there was an article I read recently that said that the great iconoclastic waves in history were the first iconoclastic controversy where even in Eastern Orthodoxy and the Eastern Empire, there was a wave of icon breaking. It didn't last for that long, as you can yeah. obviously tell. Uh, then the Protestant Reformation. And then the third would be actually the post-Vatican II period of the Catholic Church, where a lot of the icons, the statuary, and the stained glass was destroyed. Um, it all in the name of progress and modernity in that the modern man didn't need such silly medieval superstitions um, and that he just, you know, abstract art, you know. Um, it's the age of science and rationality and the atomic age. Uh, we saw how well that that turned out. Uh, the fourth wave we're seeing perhaps is, um, of course, what happened with ISIS. Um, so... Uh, I tend to not. I tend to not uh, look well upon iconoclasm. I think that it. I think it stems from. I think it stems from a dark place. Hmm. Now, then, what do you say to those who? I, I actually think what's funny is I think a lot of Islamic and Protestant beliefs do come from the same place on here where they're using kind of the Old Testament command of not making graven images. Right. And they're using that to say any image is then a graven image, even if it is of Jesus or a saint or whatever. Um, my, my understanding is they're both using that verse to kind of justify this mindset. And I want to be charitable. I know some people genuinely believe this way and are good people, but what do you, what do you think about that, that comparison? And, um, how do you respond to that kind of criticism of the use of art? Where that comes from, it, it, there is a legitimate place where it comes from in that respect. So, for example, in ancient Israelite, um, in ancient Israelite religion, they are surrounded by people who are idolaters. They are surrounded by the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Phoenicians and who are um, worshipping statues, worshipping trees, worshipping poles. Uh, worshiping rocks and mountains. And uh, obviously this is seen as, you know, idolatrous and this is seen as wrong. The other thing is that um, in ancient Arabia, one of the things Muhammad was fighting against was the um, paganism that existed in Arabia. For example, the Kaaba used to have idols in it. Mm -hmm. So, because the Kaaba was sort of like the pantheon. It's like where all of the gods of Arabia were put. And so all the traders and all the merchants had to have a place for their god. And he comes in with a message saying, no, there is only one god. And he does not exist in uh, he does not exist in an icon or an image or a statue. Yeah. You know, so there's that very famous part where he goes into the Kaaba and uh, takes out all the uh, idols. Now, what's interesting is that it is said uh, that there was probably an icon of Jesus and Mary also in the Kaaba because there were Christians in Arabia at that time. Mm -hmm. So if you understand the surrounding context and whom their enemies were and what they were fighting against, again, the iconoclasm was a way of saying, we are not this. 
Yeah. For those interested more on that specific topic, uh, Reza Aslan writes a book, No God But God, and it's a lot of the history of Islam. It talks a lot about the Kaaba and mm-hmm. fascinating stuff. Um, I didn't. I didn't want to ask you though, because when we're talking about like how the Israelites were set apart from all those other idol worshippers mm-hmm. from their time, they still were commanded by God to build like I don't know if statues is the right word, but you know they they were graving up angels that hold the ark and all these kind of things that I think most of us would consider statues, and mm-hmm. maybe in that time we would be confused on the difference of that in an idol. Um, does I really only bring this up because I'm curious if the Catholic Church has any statues of angels or if it's strictly saints. Uh, there are statues of angels and some – to make things more confusing, there are <laughs> three or four angels who are also saints. Michael um, – <laughs> yeah, Michael, Raphael, um, you know, and so it, it, that – you know, so it's, you know, St. Michael the Archangel, St. Raphael, St. Gabriel. Um, yeah. So, so that can be a little bit confusing sometimes. And there are there's plenty of statues <laughs> of Saint Michael the Archangel. Usually, if there are statues of angels, they're more decorative, rather, or more of more used as like a companion piece, rather than like something that people are going to zero in on. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So sometimes okay. you'll have an image or a statue where it's flanked by images of angels, but the angels really aren't the focus. Yeah. Well, we went to um, St. Michael's Anglican Church to record an mm-hmm. episode way early on in the podcast. They had a mm-hmm. an art piece of Michael the angel in mm-hmm. battle. Yep. It looked so cool. It looked it's so, so cool. neat. Yeah. yeah, that was like yeah. four years ago. I forgot that happened. Yeah, it was cool though. Uh, so – what role have women played in sacred art, both in and out of the church? So there has always been female painters. Um, the one that I talk a lot about is uh, Artemisa Gentilici from, and I might be massacring that pronunciation because I'm doing this on the fly, but she was a very famous um, Renaissance painter. She met all sorts of people, like she knew Charles II. Um, she she traveled all throughout Europe, um, and she painted a lot of scenes from the Old Testament. And people have had a psychological field day about why she really liked painting images like Judith and Holofernes, or she liked painting Jael and Sisera. So it's all these pictures of superheroes, superhero and woman from the Old Testament getting the better of oppressive men. <laughs> Mm, so yeah well she had some issues with her uh, husband so you know um but it also ties in with the fact that um at that time a lot of the italian city states would also consider themselves would equate themselves with the underdogs you know and be like we're just like judith we're just like you know we're just like uh and and our opponents are like holophonies stuff like that um but there's always been female artists uh, I mean, there's just really never been a time where they were not. Um, sometimes their accomplishments have not been uh, given given uh, due attention. Yeah, I uh, I am curious though. I don't know if you would know this mm-hmm. because I'm trying to be careful. I'll say this: His, historically, women have largely been kept from a lot of ministering roles. Mm-hmm. Um, whether we think it's legitimate or not, I know there's a lot of debate, and a lot of people listening are wanting to yell their opinions, but that's not what we're here for today. Um, I am curious, though. But given that they were 
kind of held back from ministry and other roles. Do you think there was like a disproportionate amount of women who that was their ministry was through participating in the arts in some way or making the the garments and stuff for the ministers or anything like that? Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. There's a lot of um, a lot of textile work, tapestries, altar coverings, vestments. These are also places where uh, these are also places that are art. Uh, and where women have definitely played a huge role. And you'll get this with some of this was sort of a trope of post Vatican II women when they were like talking about taking up roles in the church. And they would often be like, well, we're not going to go back to, you know, embroidering lace on priest vestments and things like that. And it's like, hey, not everyone has to do that. There's, there's a, that's a legitimate, um, that there is something legitimate about that. But at the same time, now, what have we done instead? Instead of women actually, or men, because sometimes men are vestment artists too. Um, so what have we done instead? We've outsourced it to factories where we have, you know, polyester poncho monstrosities, you know, rather, you know, so we've outsourced our artwork to, you know, a corporation rather than having the people of the parish actually be the ones who create the vestments they see up on the altar. So yay for progress. Yeah, hooray yeah. for progress. We love yeah. postmodern capitalism. Hey. Uh, <laughs> oh man, fun stuff. So yeah. <laughs> to, to do a hard, well, mm, did you have anything else that you would like to add as far as like women's participation in or how they've been portrayed in religious art before we move on? I think that something that is always important to keep in mind is the use of symbols in artwork. So if symbols are often like this coded language, and if you look at various icons and various artworks, flowers, plants, trees, animals, um, the use of certain colors, they all have deep spiritual meanings. So for example, the, I'll just give you a real easy one. The lily, it's a symbol of purity. You know, um, it also, this is where like spirituality and sort of geekdom sort of go together. Like medieval, medieval bestiaries often would talk about fantastical creatures, but then they would give short little stories about how those creatures embodied a spiritual value. So for example, though we know this is not the case, but we can forgive the medievals. They thought the pelican ripped open its breasts to feed its children. Just like Christ, you know, sacrificed, you know, was sacrificed to feed us with his flesh and blood. So if you see pelicans around, it's not just a pelican. Mm -hmm. They also have this idea that peacocks, for example, that peacocks flesh would not um, rot. We know that's it does. Uh, but and so the peacock was considered a symbol of Christ because he, you know, rose from the dead. So that you can see on altars and mosaics all the way back in history. And you're like, what's the peacock doing here? What does that have to do anything? Is it just great? <laughs> no, they're like this stuff, like particularly in older artworks, I can't speak to a lot of modern stuff, but everything's intentional. Yeah. There was something we learned a little bit when um, Father Jonathan of the Orthodox mm -hmm. tradition was on, on the series. And um, it, it's funny to me, because you, you mentioned the, the intersection of, geekdom and faith stuff. Mm -hmm. um, Pastor Will Rose, also mm -hmm. been on this series. He does a systematic ecology, our other mm -hmm. podcast with us. And one of his big things, he likes to talk about how how 
stained glass was the original comic books where they were telling stories yes. through art. And it was so funny because I've heard Pastor Will say that forever. I've been to hear Father Jonathan expand it, not just stained glass, but icons and how, you know, before we were able to just, you know, not everybody was able to read. A lot of times this art was betraying our theology and teaching mm -hmm. people because they couldn't read, but they could look at a picture and see that he's holding a cross. That means that was a martyr, right? right. They could see mm -hmm. the little patch of hair that symbolizes wisdom and that it's not betraying them as they were, but rather teaching us about the saint. Right. More exactly. than showing us what he looked like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, is there – wait, <laughs> sorry. Are there women saints? Is that a thing? Oh, gosh, of course. They're all over the place from the very beginning. Do you have a favorite icon of a woman saint? Is that a, is that a thing? Um, in my room, I have one of the Blessed Virgin. You know, uh, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, I should have I should have known that. Yeah, the Blessed Virgin and Child. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's an Eastern style icon that uh, my friend oh, Father cool. yeah that my friend Father Edward from Berkeley gave me. So oh yeah, yeah. sick yeah yeah that's cool yeah so. Um, the last question we're asking everybody, um, you know, we, we usually ask for like a practical action for church unity, but in this series, we're asking everyone outside of paintings or statues, what is one type of art that you think everyone could get into that might help us all draw closer to God and closer to one another? Honestly, good lighting and a good choice of paint. I think we can all agree on that. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. What, uh, what do you mean by that exactly? I think that even in very simple churches, the use of light and shadow and the use of an appropriate wall covering can really transform a space. So the use of color, the use of texture. So you can have a very unadorned place without uh, icons or statues and can still be very beautiful if you play your cards right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if everyone, you know, learned their light boxes and you know, how to paint a wall. Uh, what do you think, like, if everyone took the time to appreciate that talent, what do you think we would see change? I think we would be more comfortable in each other's spaces. And I think that we wouldn't feel like such strangers when we go from one denomination to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm, I'm doing like some like business type courses to mm -hmm. get a promotion with Chipotle and What's interesting is how much they talk, they like fixate on the power of natural light. So if mm -hmm. you've ever been to like a newer Chipotle, all the walls are just windows. Yep. And um, it, it's interesting how much of our older churches have these giant windows, whether stained glass or not, that lets all that light in. And I'm like, yeah, that um, it really does just change a space. Feels better. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So before we wrap up, we always do our God moment. We just ask. Or, or you've seen God recently, whether it be a blessing, a uh, challenge, mode of worship, and I always make Josh go first uh, because I would like a little bit more time to think usually. So, Josh, do you have a God moment for us? Um, yes, yes, I have a few, and I'm trying to pick one. I um recently, actually, because of my job, I, I've been around more younger people. I'm trying to say that in a way that doesn't sound weird, <laughs> but um. And in my experience, younger people are quicker to share about their life, basically. Uh, they haven't learned to be as distrusting as some of us older folk. <laughs> and just kind of been reminded the power of, of listening, you know, not necessarily having some wise nugget for them. Because, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, hey, I've been a, I've been a high schooler. It doesn't matter if I give the perfect advice. They're not going to do it. it just, you know, sometimes I just want someone to listen. 
And um, sometimes it's hard because you hear stuff and you're like, oh, man, that's stupid. Or you're like, oh, that man, that's awful. But it's just listen, just reminded of the power of listening. So I think that's uh, my challenge is to just listen better. Hmm. I uh, I will go next. And I, you know, was blessed enough to go to a process theology leftist Christianity conference this past week, which was supposed to be three days and turned into six somehow. And uh, <laughs> man, yeah, it was like being in a Pentecostal church. It was like, oh man, we're still going. <laughs> and uh, oh, it was very eye opening. I-, I learned a lot and made a lot of great connections. And it's, I'm really thankful that I, you know, I feel motivated to pursue my own education again. And it's, it's been great. Yeah. Also motivated to write for the Tolkien Society. Um, <laughs> yeah. Re- related loosely. I just can't wait till one of my best friends is a Tolkien scholar. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you, Chris? Do you have a God moment for us? Yes. It's more of a challenge God moment. Uh, it's just that with the way the semester is turning out, uh, how much I have to rely on God to get me through the day because the demands that are being put on not just me, but my coworkers in our position, um, no amount of human cleverness or intelligence can get us through this. We, we have to really admit our weakness, admit our need for grace and to really ask God very intentionally Every morning when we wake up uh, for divine strength and assistance, because otherwise we would be, we'd just be exhausted by three o'clock, hmm. maybe earlier. So that's kind of, that's relatable. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, that's why I like going first too, is uh, I don't have to follow things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. I can Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, so please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Uh, you can share it with your enemies or with a cousin. Uh, if you aren't blessed enough to have all three, reach out to me. I can help. Uh, pick one of, you know, not pick one of, choose us. Join our Discord, download Discord if you don't have it yet. It's a fun place. Uh, you know, you get to yeah. talk to us and we get to decide whether or not we're going to answer you. And with that, <laughs> make sure you check out all the other shows on the Anazal Ministries Podcast Network, the AMP Network. Um, show note is, you know, the link is in the show notes down below. Um, yeah. You know, check one out. Let nothing move you. Christian Ashley, you got the Clyde with the Clydes. Pastor Will, we mentioned. You know, he's got one on there. The homily. Good stuff. Yeah. And uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. Next week, we'll be taking a one-week break. And we'll be back with a roundtable episode on church polity. And finally, at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us. Yeah. He doesn't know that, though. So yeah. someone please tell him. Season one is far, be nice. far away. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Whole Church Podcast. Again, you could always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the Whole Church Podcast or on captivate.fm or on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a one-time tip through Captivate. Thank you for listening.